What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Hope you like the remix that we started out with on double speed in this motherfucker. Okay. So, got some big news to talk about. Kamala Harris. Kamala, Kamala, Kamala has been picked. So we were right when there was the um, the story that came out that was from Politico of, like, he has picked her, and it was, you know, before he actually did, I did the segment saying, I think this is a sign that he actually did pick her, and they released it too early. <sighs> so we will talk about that. Um, we got plenty of other stuff going on right now as well, including Alex Morse, a Justice Democrat who was smeared viciously. We will be defending him. We'll be making fun of Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson, among many others. So we do have a full show for you, but actually the first thing I want to do, and this is just shooting from the hip, so everybody bear with me just a little bit here, um, because I'm trying. There are two quick little like breaking stories that I want to I want to show you. One of them does actually both of these things irk me just a little bit. They irk me just a little bit. They involve um, joke thieves. We have joke thieves, and we also have we also have uh, the RNC trying to exploit the rift on the left, and uh, we cannot let them get away with that. Okay, here we go. So let me let me let me do this for you. You know, just before I came on air here, uh, I got a little bit of interesting news. So, Adrew, who's awesome, by the way, this is the guy who does the uh, secular talk cartoons. He, he kind of does, it's almost like a, a South Park-like version of, of secular talk. 
and he does these funny, like, little sketches with the cartoon. So subscribe to his channel if you haven't yet. He really does a great job. And it's not, he doesn't only do that. He does all types of animation, and he's very talented. But anyway, A. Drew um, tweeted at me that apparently the Late Show stole a joke I made the other day on Twitter that went viral. So, um... I, I said, there was this video that came out. It said, breaking, President Trump has abruptly left a White House briefing after receiving some kind of urgent update from an official. And I, you know, I was joking around, and I said, sir, the McRib is back. <laughs> like, he's leaving because they say the McRib is back. Um, the real reason he left, by the way, was because there was a shooting outside the White House. Whatever kind of shooting it was, uh, it wasn't like, you know, somebody was attempting to do a coup and overtake the White House or whatever. It was a shooting, and everything appears to be under control now. But uh, the Late Show stole it, man. The Late Show stole it. They took my McRib joke. So that does annoy me just a little bit. Now, there there were apparently this, uh, you know, this was on, like, Insta, and, and it was it went a bunch of places, Reddit, you know. But in all those other instances, people just showed my tweet. So, you know, that's giving full credit. So there's obviously zero problem with that. But they stole the joke. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Like, I'm a little bit surprised. Like, so it's got to be that one of the writers for The Late Show follows my Twitter account or something and just willy-nilly jacks stuff. So here we are. But anyway, that's, uh, that's one interesting little story. Now, the other thing which I learned about last night and um, – this one, I don't know my exact feelings on this. I feel like I have mixed feelings on it. But apparently, according to Dave Weigel, he says that there was an RNC email tonight that, that was titled, Liberals Revolt Against a Biden-Harris Ticket. And it quotes the following people. It quotes uh, Brianna Joy Gray, Walker Bragman, Michael Tracy, Jordan Chariton, and Kyle Kalinske. So they took, you know, some of my initial, um, they took some of my initial statements when I learned about Kamala officially being declared VP, and um, they, they had it in the RNC email, and as well as there was also a Fox News article that had, you know, tweets from me and tweets from Crystal Ball and tweets from um, other somewhat known lefties, and um, you know what they're trying to do is trying to exploit the rift in the Democratic Party, exploit the rift of the left versus the center. Um, and so they will try to play that up as much as humanly possible. Now, I'm well aware of that dynamic, and I'm well aware that they're doing this cynically, but just understand they ignore all the criticisms that the left has of them. Like, they're more than happy to quote me if I'm bashing corporate Democrats, but of course they would never quote me or acknowledge me or anything when I'm going after Republicans, which I probably do a majority of the time, go after their dear leader, Donald Trump or, you know, Mitch McConnell or any of them. So, you know, it's just, it is kind of annoying when you, like I say so much stuff about so many different characters on the political scene. And the only time that they're interested in what I have to say is when they could use it to try to exploit a rift. And it's just really obnoxious, you know? 
it's like when it's like what we say about Noam Chomsky. How Noam Chomsky says things that are really interesting all the time about how like the United States is the number one terrorist nation on the planet. Um, if the Nuremberg Laws were upheld, every post World War II president would be hanged. He said so many like interesting, profound things, and the only time they quote him is when he's like, "I think you should vote for Joe Biden." <laughs> like. They just water down everything about it, and I feel like it's a similar thing. They're, they're, they use people like me to try to attack Kamala and Biden, but they ignore all the things I say about them, which is just really obnoxious. Now, by the way, what did I say about Kamala? They quoted things that were rather banal. Like One of the things I said is um, Joe Biden went with the strategically brilliant move of picking somebody who's despised by both the right and the left. Apparently, the Republicans really like that quote, and Fox News really like that quote, and the RNC really like that quote, and they're running with it. Um, but I find it funny that that was like the most tame of everything I said, and that's the one that, they, that seems to be shown in most places. But there are other things I said, too. Like, um, Now, remember, if you're against Kamala um, laughing at legal weed Harris and you know, protector of Steve Mnuchin – it's because you're a racist. So because this is what's going to happen. We already know this is what's going to happen. They're going to accuse everybody who goes after Kamala, even if it's from a left-wing position and even if it's policy-focused, they're going to accuse you of being sexist or racist or both um, because it's, it's so easy to cynically weaponize identity um, to bat away criticism over unrelated issues. So, I mean, I guess we got to get used to this, but I, I'm, the, I'm the funniest known person because I'm the only person who's like in has some sort of public um profile where if my stuff goes in new places I'm like I don't know about this (laughs) so in other words they're like introducing all these people to me and what I do or they're making it more likely so who's this person then they might look it up or whatever but at the same time I'm like I don't know it's kind of weird that you're like trying to weaponize things I say and use it for nefarious opportunistic purposes so you know most people with any kind of public profile it's like if their stuff gets anywhere they're like yes (laughs) more attention for me yes but I just I you know I think I care most importantly about being on the record accurately if I'm if I'm not on the record accurately, but the show is five times the size it is, it is. It's like what's the point? Then you know the whole message is totally muddled. So anyway, can't say I'm surprised that the RNC would do such a thing, but I am a little bit surprised. I am a little bit surprised. Like who that's in in the top of the RNC is following my Twitter account? Who who's like you know somebody who's making these executive decisions in the Republican Party is, is keeping tabs on on secular talk. It just strikes me as, uh, as rather weird. Okay. Now, Kamala Harris. So the real bosses have now weighed in on Joe Biden's VP pick. And when I say the real bosses, I mean the moneyed interests, I mean Wall Street, I mean the people with the capital who have all the power. So CNBC says Wall Street executives are glad Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris to be his VP running mate. 
Wall Street leaders on Tuesday cheered Joe Biden's selection of Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate in the presidential election. Finance executives, confident the ticket has what it takes to topple President Donald Trump, raved about her experience in government as well as her fundraising prowess. Financial advisory firm Sigmund Global is already telling its clients that the choice of Harris reinforces the notion that the Democratic ticket is more moderate than progressive. See, now this is why the left is not happy with the decision of Kamala Harris. This is why. Because Wall Street is happy with it. And our interests are at odds with their interests. And their interests are at odds with working people's interests. So um, I'm telling you, man, the decision that was made, they they genuinely think, okay, we're going to pick Kamala Harris because the establishment loves her, and the establishment always wins. They're the ones who really control politics. But the fact that she's a black woman is enough to tell the left, "Ah, ah, 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 know your place. This would be historic. It would be a female black VP who might even become president. So that would be historic. Are you going to oppose that history? Is that what you're going to do? You're going to be against that history. You're going to be against the first female black vice president and potentially president? Seems kind of bigoted to me. If you're against that, it seems kind of bigoted. Now, you might look at that and be like, well, that sounds, that's absurd. Like they're stretching to make such an argument because you could object to her on substantive grounds. No, but they will literally, like I'm, I've already seen it all over the place. They're already making this argument. This is going to be the argument that if you're criticizing her, obviously, especially if you're a white man, it has to come from a place of racial animus or like gender issues. It has to. Now, it doesn't matter how much I'm very specific about here, here are the policies. Here's why I'm not okay. It doesn't matter. They're just going to overlook that and be like, you're not, you're not actually critiquing her because the reason you say you're critiquing her because you're uncomfortable with the first female black vice president and potentially president. So just buckle up, because that's exactly what's going to happen. And there will be no direct acknowledging of any of the facts that are laid out. And by the way, I suggest you read the whole article, the CNBC article, because it's wild to read it. It's so weird when you read through it and you see the way that these people view politics and the way that they discuss politics. They talk about how, like, well, now, because Kamala is the VP... Now, expect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to really have a fundraising haul from the moneyed interests that's going to have them top Trump and the Republicans. So they talk about how her fundraising prowess is one of the main reasons why she was picked. You know what that means? The donors love her. The big money donors love her. That's what that means. And, you know, person after person is praising this decision and basically saying, like, oh, Kamala's really pragmatic. She's very pragmatic about everything. So we know that this administration is not going to go too far left. What does too far left mean to them, by the way? Too far left to them means regulating them, regulating Wall Street, bringing back Glass-Steagall, for example. They wouldn't be okay with that because that cuts into their profits. That cuts into their ability to make money in the short term. Raising their taxes. That's another thing. Raising their taxes. They know if it's Biden, Kamala Harris, oh, thank God. It's not, it's not like 
It's not like Bernie's going to come in here and actually tax us and redistribute the wealth. It's not like somebody's going to go in there and actually be like a new FDR and redistribute. They know, oh, okay, thank God, it's going to be status quo, business as usual. Maybe we could get Trump out of there, who's a crazy person, and still continue to be served, but also have the, you know, the fake professionals in charge, who at least can pretend to make it look like mm, we're very serious people, yeah. So here we are, man. Again, you go read that article, and you'll see the exact reason why the left is like, oh, no, it's Kamala, because the donors really do love her, which says everything. Because what those donors want, that's at odds with what the American people want and what working people need. So, and then, of course, you know, we've gone over this before, but Kamala Harris refused to prosecute Steve Mnuchin who's the Goldman Sachs lackey. This was back when he was ahead of One West Bank, and he was doing mortgage fraud. He was illegally foreclosing on people and taking their houses from them. And some of them were senior citizens, and they were kicked out. This, this was during the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. Her own office said you should prosecute him. She refused to prosecute him. Well, turns out she also took some campaign contributions from Steve Mnuchin and friends. And so, wow, I wonder why she didn't prosecute him. Yeah, it's really hard to figure out. She also famously laughed at legal marijuana, and that was not too long ago. That was either 2012 or 2014. That was very recently that she laughed at the idea of legalizing marijuana. She fought to keep some innocent people locked up. Even when there was evidence that somebody was innocent, she tried to keep somebody locked up on a technicality. That's a very famous story that blew up, especially during her presidential run. She even supports civil asset forfeiture, which is a legalized robbery by cop. Hey, if you have a badge, it should be legal for you to take somebody's stuff and say, I don't know, I think you're maybe about to use that in a drug deal or something, so I'm going to confiscate it. This is who Kamala Harris is. This is who she is. So, isn't it crazy? After all this time, we feel like we're right back in the 2016 situation. Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine, and now it's Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. We hopped in a time machine, we're right back in 2016, and we have that sinking feeling, that feeling of like, ugh, all this time, all this work, and they still managed to outmaneuver us and jujitsu us. The establishment still won this round. We can't give up because giving up is not an option, but we do need to acknowledge the state of reality, and it ain't pretty. Okay, now I'll talk about Alex Morse. This story is actually really important. Alex Morse is running against corporate Democratic Congressman Richard Neal. And um, there were some allegations made against him recently. Now, I use that term very, very loosely because, as you're about to see, um, I, I think it was a smear job. So let me show you a clip. This is Alex Morse. He spoke to our friends over at Rising, Crystal and Sager. And um, they're going to they're gonna get into what the scandal is, what the specifics are, what he thinks is actually going on. And then when we come back, I'm going to give you some more information because there are some really important lessons for the left to take away 
from everything that happened in this situation. We'll cut to it uh, quite quickly. So these allegations, they've you know, surfaced in the Boston Globe and, and across national media. In this letter, they accuse you of regularly matching with college students on dating and hookup apps like Grindr and Tinder, adding people to your close friends list on Instagram, sending them direct messages and engaging in sexual contact with college students. We wanted to give you a chance to address those allegations and whether you feel that your conduct was appropriate or not. Yeah, so I, I got into public life when I was 21 years old. Uh, I'm openly gay. I've been single for the vast majority of the last uh, 10 years. And one thing I, I will not apologize for is for being a young person and having other consensual adult relationships. And I want to be very clear that never in my adult life have I uh, been part of a non-consensual uh, relationship or a sexual encounter with anyone. And as a young person and as a gay person, I do use gay dating apps, uh, and I have matched with, uh, with college students. Uh, and college students um, live in the area. I live in Western Massachusetts, and I am not going to apologize again for using gay dating apps and meeting other men um, on those apps uh, and having conversations. And you know, I, I do want to you know honor the, the students' perspective, uh, those that um, you know are are saying that they were made to feel uncomfortable. I, I apologize for that, and I can't uh, discredit their truth or, or how they feel. But what I know for sure is that I. I'm not under that impression that I made someone uncomfortable, but that's for them to, to decide, not, not for me. And so the students deserve to be heard. Uh, and, and, and like I said, I will fully cooperate with any process. And uh, I am completely confident that uh, I have not violated any policies of the University of Massachusetts. Um, and I believe that I have every right to have consensual relationships uh, with, with other men. And Mayor, just to be clear, None of the students with, which, with whom you had sexual contact were your own students in any of your classes while you were a lecturer, correct? That is correct. And then can you give us just a little bit of background here? When did these allegations come to your attention? When did you find out that this letter was going to go out, that you'd be disinvited to the events? And what is your understanding of the specific nature of the allegations here? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the letter from the College Democrats, there is very little specificity. There are no names. Even their follow-up statement talks about Instagram messages, but doesn't even go as far as to say that the messages were inappropriate. Anyone of my close friends on Instagram knows that I take pictures of sunsets and take pictures of chocolate chip cookies and blueberry muffins uh, that I cook. It's nothing, <laughs> it's nothing salacious. And so I just think it's, it's interesting that, that three weeks out we're talking about my personal sex life and not talking about what a non-responsive, unaccountable corporate Democrat, and talk about an abuse of power. We have a member of Congress that is abusing his power on behalf of the wealthy and corporations for the last 30 years. And I will be very honest, your question about how long have we heard about this, the, this story has been shopped around to national publications for the last several weeks. Hmm. And Politico, the Washington Post, other national publications refuse to print it because they couldn't get anyone on record. And so basically the UMass Daily Collegian just printed word for word a, an email from the College Democrats. And the mainstream media, I think, have done an incredible disservice uh, by amplifying this. And huh. publications from the Boston Globe to other outlets have given more scrutiny to my personal sex life and personal life than they've ever given scrutiny to Congressman Neal's corruption and the way in which he's used his power over a 30-year period. 
So that interview goes on. I, I highly recommend you watch the entire thing. I also recommend you watch Crystal Ball segment um, from the other day because it's wonderful. She does a great radar on this um, and really lays out some of the underlying philosophical problems which lead the left to be misled and to really destroy itself in many ways. Um, So definitely check that out. Now, here's the update to this that just really gets under my skin. Some Sunrise Movement chapters unendorsed it. Now, Justice Democrats did not, but they did say that they're disappointed in his actions and we're reevaluating our relationship with them and hopefully this is a teachable moment. And they said, you know, things of that nature. And I've seen it. I've seen it on social media. Uh, There was, and perhaps even the worst example was how quickly DSA unendorsed him and how quickly people were willing to throw him under the bus. And unfortunately, I've seen this show one too many times because it's happened with other people and it's happened in similar instances where there is no there there. Like in the case of Jank Uger, they dug up, you know, blogs from the year like 1999 or 2000 where he's making jokes and they use this as evidence that, you know, the left can't be associated with him or he must be a bad person as a result of this. And so we have to take a stand and, and, and grandstand and virtue signal and let everybody know I'm a good person and I'm against bad words and I'm against bad things, okay? Now, in the case of Alex Morse, let's just understand all the facts real quick. This is a guy who is a young gay man and he's using gay dating apps and hooking up with people. Now, the, the whole scandal is that, oh, my God, he's, he's a lecturer at a, at a university, and he dated students at the university. Now, none of them are underage, by the way, none of them. They're all legal, consenting adults, and none of them were even in any of his lectures or his classes. None of them. So you have, what, five-year, ten-year age difference where it's consenting adults? Where's the scandal? I see no scandal. And then people say, like, okay, but if somebody comes out and says, well, I was uncomfortable when I learned who he was, that doesn't change the fact that there was consent at the time. And actually, one could make the argument, like, Alex Morris, who's been a mayor from a young age, there are instances of him not telling people who he's dating that he's a mayor. Now, when I look at that, I go, oh, he's trying to not have a power dynamic ruin the situation. Now, you could say hey, maybe he should you know, do full disclosure, but if he did full disclosure, then people would have said, you're a mayor, so you're by definition taking advantage of people. But he didn't do the disclosure, which means the power dynamic was there was no power dynamic. It was just, I'm a person, you're a person. How's it going? And they still go after him and say, I, once, I, once I learned he was a mayor, man, did I feel like I was uncomfortable with the situation. Okay, you were uncomfortable with the situation? That's not, if you consent at the time, you can't turn around later and be like, I, I was uncomfortable with the situation. Therefore, this has to get put in the category of like 
sexual harassment or sexual assault or sexual inappropriateness or whatever you want to say. That doesn't make any sense. Now, but there's another update to the story, and this part is amazing. The person who made this a story basically was trying to get a job in Richard Neal's office. Now, um, let me tell you about Richard Neal. Richard Neal, that's who Alex Morse is running against in Massachusetts. He is the most corporate of the corporate Democrats. He's as corporate as they come. So Richard Neal literally is the number one recipient of corporate PAC donations. Numero uno. In all of Congress, the number one recipient of corporate PAC money. He was in the news recently. You want to know what it was for? He is the one Democrat who blocked a bill that would have put an end to what's called surprise medical billing. He said, no, I, I am pro-surprise medical billing. Why? Because he takes money from the industries. He takes money from big pharma and health insurance companies and all of the, the ghouls and goons and lobbyists who really run this country. That, my friends, is who Richard Neal is. He's the worst of the worst. He's as bad as it gets when it, when it comes to corporate Democrats. So just, so just to recap, you have somebody who was trying to get a job in Richard Neal's office starting a smear campaign, painting Alex Morris as some sort of predatory gay man. By the way, thanks for feeding into homophobic tropes, right? Like, oh, my God, the predatory gay man preying on, on, on young people. Everybody was a consenting adult. Everybody, every single one of them was a consenting adult. And he was having adult relationships with people. There was no power. There wasn't even a power dynamic issue. Like, I get it. Sometimes there's gray areas. Hey, is there a real power imbalance issue here? Well, I don't know. Let's hear out everybody's opinion and see what people think about it. But this is an instance where there, I don't even think there's a stretch of a case that there were power imbalance issues because the people he was dating, they may have been students, but they were of age and they weren't in his class. So there is no issue here. And this was a smear job where somebody trying to get a, a job in Richard Neal's office was more than happy to do a political hit job on Richard Neal's opponent. That's exactly what this is. And since the left is more than willing to eat itself and hurt actual good candidates, it semi-worked when you got the DSA to unendorse, when you got some Sunrise Movement chapters that are unendorsing. Well, every, everybody at least was doing a little finger wagging. Even the Justice Democrats' response was like, well, you know, we got to hear out survivors and this and that. See, this is my problem with the left these days, is that people find it so hard to just call bullshit. I don't know why. I don't know why it's so hard to just say, you know what, that's bullshit. Why is that so difficult for people? This reminds me of when there was the, the smear campaign on Ilhan Omar calling her an anti-Semite, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did like a, a middle path comment on it. It's like, well, we have to hear people out if you're offending them with your language and this and that. It was a smear job. Anything except a full-throated defense of Ilhan Omar is giving your enemies ammunition. Do you understand that? There are sometimes where you have to decide to have solidarity and stand together. This is the problem, is that with the left these days, it's true, man. 
people are so obsessed with victimhood narratives that all anybody has to do ever is claim some semblance of victimhood, and it's immediately like it's viewed as leftier than now and purer than now to immediately believe any kind of uh, allegation against somebody. And if you question it, oh my God, then you're not a good lefty. You're not pure enough. So it's viewed as like a betrayal of left values to say like, hey, hold on a second. Maybe due process actually is important and maybe evidence actually does matter. No, it's viewed as you're purer and you're better than and you're leftier than now if you immediately cut off all ties and start wagging your finger. Because, and this is a great point that Crystal Ball made in her commentary on this, because so many people on the left view politics as more of a vehicle for personal, personal self-actualization and self-aggrandizement. And so you view it as a vehicle by which you can virtue signal and, and show the world how amazing your moral compass is. When the real idea of politics for serious people is to stand in solidarity and fight to improve everybody's life. That's the real point of politics. The real point of politics is to come together to try to fix our problems and improve everybody's life. When that takes a back seat to virtue signaling about how much you're against bad things, well, then we're in trouble. Because literally all any Republican has to do and all any corporate Democrat has to do is come out and say, this person said something that was offensive in 1997, or this person did something that was offensive in 2002, or this person made me feel uncomfortable on a date even though it was totally consensual every step of the way. Any claim of victimhood, the left immediately goes, brain off, cut off all ties. Well, again, congratulations on being such a sucker that you give Republicans and corporate Democrats all the tools to permanently defeat you and keep you a subculture from now until the end of time. You're literally never going to win. If you don't know how to grow a spine and call bullshit when something is bullshit. So here we have somebody who takes no corporate PAC money, who's for Medicare for all, who's a good lefty who's trying to improve people's lives. And he was railroaded by a smear campaign and an unfortunately large number of people on the left were more than willing to feed into it and throw him right under the bus so they can make themselves feel good and stand up and say, I'm against bad things. If you were offended or uncomfortable on a date or anything like that, well, now I agree. This person is basically as bad as Harvey Weinstein. Terrible. Uh, one of the comments, I think it was the Sunrise Movement's comment, but it may have been the, the DSA one. They literally bring up rape culture in, in the comment on it. Rape culture? A gay man going on dates consensually with other gay men. Everybody's of age. There are no power dynamic issues because he's not their teacher. He is a teacher. They are students, but he is not their teacher. So there is no power dynamic issue. And you bring up rape culture and act like he's some sort of perpetrator, like he's Bill Cosby or something. You fell for a smear job. That's exactly what this was. This is corporate Democrat Richard Neal going in the gutter because that's the only way he can win. 
That guy can't win on the issues. Of course he can't win on the issues. He's one of the most corrupt members of Congress. Of course he can't win on the issues. So ask yourself, why is it we're always sidetracked with stuff like this? Wow, would you look at that? At the same time that we have lefties knocking off establishment types all over the place, like Cori Bush just beating Lacey Clay, weeks out from the election, oh, would you look at this? An allegation pops up against Alex Morris. Oh, I guess you guys got to, you know, I guess you guys got to amputate. I guess you guys got to kick this guy to the curb, right? What are you going to do? Pathetic, man. It's so pathetic. And I've seen this time and time and time again. Happens so often. You have to prioritize. Is it more important? Glenn Greenwald made this point, and I think it's spot on. Sunrise Movement, their whole thing is like, oh my God, we have to do something to stop climate change. This is going to destroy us all, and we need to fight for the environment. And again, some chapters unendorsed him after this. So you're telling me that now climate change an existential issue that needs to be addressed right now. Who cares? Let the corrupt guy who's going to do nothing to fix it stay in power because maybe, maybe not, there's a question about sexual allegations, not really, that this guy was involved in. So now that takes priority over saving the planet. It's just too easy, man. It's just too easy to destroy the left. Because all you got to do is let the left destroy itself. This is why I talk about purity tests um, in what I think is, is a nuanced way. There's purity on policy, purity on ancillary or side issues. And I've always said, when it comes to policy, I am the most pure of the purists. I am as big of a purist, I will literally argue to your face for litmus tests. You should have litmus tests. That's called having standards. That's called voting for somebody based on specific issues. That's called being an educated adult who gives a shit. Okay, I will argue for purity when it comes to policy in your politicians who you support. I will argue for that. You will never, ever, 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 ever hear me argue for purity on ancillary issues, for purity in your personal life. Guess what? There's somebody out there who's been an asshole to his family his entire life, okay? Maybe he even committed a couple crimes. Maybe he even spent some time in prison when he tried to jack a car or something when he was younger, okay? But it also could be the case that that person will fight harder than anybody else for Medicare for All and free college and a Green New Deal and a living wage and ending the wars. So what do you do in a situation like that? To me, it's not even a question. It's not even a question. If it's not the same guy who stole a car, let's say when he was 20, uh, by the way, I'm making all this stuff up. It almost sounds like I'm talking about somebody specifically. I'm not. I'm making it up. But, like, I can overlook all of that stuff if we know they're a vote on the right side of the issue and they're going to fight to try to fix the system. I think that that's the only position that makes sense. You are muddying the waters and trying to deflect and obfuscate if you allow that personal stuff to override the policy stuff. You could have somebody who's been a wonderful family man his entire life and never done anything wrong, never broken any law, but he'll vote against Medicare for All and a Green New Deal and, and a living wage and all that stuff. 
That guy's the bigger problem politically. Grow up, everybody. Grow up. Politics is not child's play. Politics is not where you go for personal fulfillment. Politics is where you go to try to fix real problems in society. And your personal shit has to take a back seat if you're going to be an adult. Okay? Are there some lines? Sure. Do I want somebody who's a freaking serial killer? Of course not. But the lines are in extreme places. I can forgive almost anything when it comes to the ancillary stuff. What I can't forgive is on the policy stuff. Here we have a guy who's a superstar on policy. So if you're one of the suckers who fell for the smear campaign, shame on you. Okay, next. Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro, squeaky Benjamin, he went viral the other day for all the wrong reasons. Uh, I'm sure all of you guys have seen this by now. He spoke about a new song by Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion, and it's called WAP. I think, again, I think most of you know what that stands for. Well, if you don't, it's okay, because uh, Ben Shapiro let us know in what has quickly become one of the most infamous moments in cringy internet history. Here are some lyrics. You ready? Whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. Hold up. I said certified freak seven days a week. Wet ass P word. Make that pullout game weak. Yeah, you effin' with some wet ass P word. P word is female genitalia. Bring a bucket and a mop. For this wet-ass P-word, give me everything you got for this wet-ass P-word. Beat it up, N-word. Catch a charge. Extra large and extra hard. Put this P-word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top, I want to ride. I do a kegel while it's inside. Spit in my mouth. Look in my eyes. This P-word is wet. Come take a dive. It continues uh, along these lines. Uh, and it gets significantly, significantly more vulgar. Like, oh, a lot more vulgar. Talk your S-word, bite your lip, ask for a call while you ride that D-word. You really ain't never going to F him for a thing. He already made his mind up before he came. Now get your boots and your coat for this wet-ass P-word. Pay my tuition just to kiss me on this wet-ass p Right, so this is, the, guys, this, this is what feminists fought for. This is what the feminist movement was all about. It's not, uh, it, it's not really about, you know, women being treated as independent, full rounded human beings, it's about wet ass P word. And if you say anything differently, it's because you're a misogynist, you see. Uh, it gets really, uh, really, 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 really vulgar. Why, bro? Why? Why'd you have to do it? Now, when he saw that he was trending as a result of this, he went on Twitter and he made it worse. He made it worse. He said something along the lines of like, mm, my wife's a doctor. And so she tells me that if, indeed, somebody does have wet-ass P-word, that what that means is uh, you probably have some sort of uh, diagnosable medical issue. Here are a few of what those medical issues may be. And everybody's response, I mean, it, naturally, everybody was like, wow. So Ben Shapiro was saying, obviously the only way a woman can have a wet pussy 
is if she has some sort of medical condition. <laughs> Somebody said to him, oh, Ben, is that what your wife tells you about why she doesn't get wet? Oh, <laughs> oh man. He just, but he does it to himself, man. He just dug a deeper and deeper and deeper hole. He just, he couldn't help. He's digging away all day. Let me make myself look ridiculous. Ben Shapiro apparently doesn't know much about wet-ass P-word, and I'm not surprised at all by that. But this is what happens, guys, when you, like, it's so easy for unserious people to get lost on the battlefield of the culture war. I mean, that's what it is. People are getting lost on the battlefield of the culture war. And you end up looking ridiculous. I mean, this guy, he does a political show like we do here, right? And like, I don't know, man. How much time are you spending on the pandemic? How much time are you spending on the fact that we're in a, Effectively, in a depression, the real unemployment is 20%. Are you talking about the freaking seven or eight wars that we're still in? You want to talk about that a little bit? or Like, no. See, this is what was on his mind. Curious. I wonder why it's on his mind. (laughs) Horny Benjamin. We're changing the name from Squeaky Benjamin to Horny Benjamin. But, like, who cares? Who cares? He thinks he's making some brilliant point about feminism. Dude, there are all types of different schools of thought in feminism. There's sex-positive feminism and sex-negative feminism. Yes, the sex-negative feminists would say that this is exploitative by its very nature, and all you're doing is feeding into a man's desire, and you need to strive to be your own independent woman. And so, you know, sex is not something that we should really concern ourselves with and shouldn't be as upfront with it and stuff like that. Yes, there are sex-negative feminists who would argue that. There's also sex-positive feminists who would argue, actually, yes, Liberation means freedom. Freedom means we get to say and do whatever we want as long as we're not hurting anybody else, and that includes being very overtly sexual so you can piss right off. Of course there are different schools of thought in feminism, but he makes it seem like this is a giant gotcha. Like, ah, see? Feminism has led to women singing sexual songs that make me hard. Wait, did I I say that part out loud? Did I say it out loud? I, I don't know why I didn't do it in his voice. This is the voice that he uses. Yeah, uh, I must say that I'm very uncomfortable with the wet-ass P word. I mean, the lyrics are very, very vulgar. I don't even understand, you know, what... I really don't like it at all, guys. I swear. This is really bad. This is really one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. I mean, all I see is big booties bouncing and... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Benjamin. What are we going to do with you, man? What are we going to do with you? I, I have a general rule that you, it's so hard to... Why would you seriously critique culture like this? Again, if your lane is politics, economics, foreign policy, like, yes, that's, there, there are real answers there. There are real things to talk about there, real policies to pursue and flesh out. If you get lost in this culture war battle, it's like, what's the point? It's like, what? okay, so the point of this segment is what? You know likey sexy song? And? <laughs> I don't really give a fuck if you like it or not. I don't really give a fuck. And I guess most of the people in your audience were probably watching that too, like, why are we talking about this? Yes, Ben, there's all types of music. 
You want to go listen to some classical music or you want to go listen to some music where it's not like sexual and all up in your face? By all means, there's plenty of stuff to go see. There's also stuff out there that's sexual. What do you want to do, Bed? You want to ban this stuff? Is that what you want to do? You want to, you want to take a stand. Society needs to take a stand against all this open sexuality. Gross. Well, what happened? I thought that you were the people who believed in freedom and believed in free speech. Yes, part of free speech, part of free expression is stuff that you might not find tasteful, stuff that you might not like, songs that you might not like. It's almost like, guys, if he was a commentator in like the 1970s and 1980s, we all know he would have been out there along with, what's her name, Tipper Gore, trying to argue that like rap music should be banned. He'd be right there. He really thinks that that's like a worthy fight. That like, you know, we're leading the youth astray by having stuff like this. And, or a song is just a song and it doesn't really matter. Get over it. Okay, next. So Tucker Carlson spoke to Ayan Hirsi Ali about Joe Biden, and um, she made quite the accusation against him. Here's something really surprising. Joe Biden, after a lifetime on the left, now supports bringing religion back into schools. Watch. I wish we taught more in our schools about the Islamic faith. Ayanarchi Ali is a former Muslim, author of the book Heretic, Why Islam Needs a Reformation Now, and one of our all-time favorite guests. We're honored to have her tonight. And thanks so much for coming on. So how do you how do you assess it? Most people have not seen this video. I'm interested in your thoughts as someone who's deeply learned on this subject. What, is, what do you take from this? Well, I mean, if you go on, uh, by the way, Tucker, hi, nice to see you again, and thank you for having me on. Um, but um, when you go to the next sentence, the next thing that he says on the clip, which is, if you see something wrong, and he quotes the Prophet Muhammad, then use your hand, uh, and if you can't use your hand, use your tongue, and if you can't use your tongue, then use your heart. What he is basically doing from that point onwards is enforcing Sharia law. And it is vigilantism on steroids. It's like, you know, we've seen, if you're a Muslim, you grew up within Islam, you're trying to reform it, you're just a good American Muslim, you are being confronted with a former vice president and um, I would say a candidate for um, a major political party who is basically saying, let's enforce Sharia law. Yeah, 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 that's totally what he's saying. That's exactly what he's for. I always say that. Joe Biden's for Sharia. I mean, it's obvious. He's been since like the 1970s. Like, what the hell is wrong with these people? I mean, guys, listen, he's a pandering politician. He's out there. He's, you know... Yes, he's going to speak to Jewish groups. He's going to speak to Muslim groups. He's going to speak to black groups. Like, this is what he's going to do. He's trying to get votes. And so he goes there, and he says stuff that he thinks might resonate. And so one of the things he did is he was quoting uh, a Hadith. Okay. She says that Joe Biden is, like, 
for enforcing Sharia law, which, by the way, I think means law law. Sharia just means law. So you could just say he's, he's for enforcing Sharia. I mean, how ridiculous do you have to be to believe that? And I love that the gotcha that Tucker tried to do at the beginning there. He was like, well, he's a lefty, but now he wants more religion in schools. And then they cut to Biden, and Biden says, like, I wish schools taught more about the Islamic faith. Tucker, there's a categorical difference between saying, I wish schools taught more about something, and saying, like, no, I think that these things should be taught as if they're true. It's the one true faith. That's the problem that the left and secularists have with teaching religion in school. Do I have a problem with people learning about religion? Of course not. Do I have a problem with starting every day with prayer? Yes. You want to know why? Because what you're doing is you're saying, you're, you're saying whatever prayer you say from whatever denomination of whatever religion, you're putting that on a pedestal. And you're saying this is representative of like what this nation is, what we all are, and it's establishing a religion. Joe Biden's not saying let's, you know, let's whip out the prayer rugs at the beginning of every day and, and you know, pray. Joe Biden's not saying let's teach Islam as if it's the one true faith. He's saying I want schools to teach more about Islam. I have no problem. As somebody who's deeply secular, I have no problem with schools teaching about Christianity, about Islam, about Judaism, about Hinduism, about Buddhism, whatever it might be. It's, but it's got to be teaching about it, not teaching it as if it is true and as if it's, it is accurate and as if it's, you know, our life philosophy that we all agree should be the thing running our lives. That's the problem. It's like, having, it's like if you wanted to force people to go to religious education, that's a problem. That's a problem. But it's not a problem. But see, Tucker knows this. He's being disingenuous. That's totally disingenuous. The idea that, like, oh, my God, Joe Biden, see, he's not in favor of Christianity being taught, but he is in favor of Islam being taught. Joe Biden's a Catholic, okay? His religion is Catholicism. I'm sure he's in favor of that being taught, too, in the same way that one would learn about Islam. I don't know, like, why of all – he's such a target-rich environment, Joe Biden is. Why do you have to go to ridiculous arguments to, to go against him, Tucker? Like, why, why do you have to do that? That's so absurd. I'm as secular as they come. Literally, the name of my show is Secular Talk. And I'm fine with teaching about religions. The problem is when you act like it's, it's the one true faith and you put it above the others and treat it as like the undergirding philosophy of, of what we're doing and of the government and of the school system. That's the problem. Joe Biden is for Sharia law, guys. Joe Biden is for Sharia. They somehow find a way... I've, I, nobody's been a harsher critic on the left of Joe Biden than me, but they somehow find a way to get me to do segments and come out here and defend him because the claims they make against him are just so over the top and so ridiculous and so silly. This is right in line with, you know, Trump and acting like he's an Antifa, acting like Biden's an Antifa or Marxist puppet. It's beyond ridiculous. And sometimes they, they contradict themselves in service of making these points. Like Trump argued Joe Biden wrote the crime bill, and also he's way too soft on crime. So literally in the same criticism, he'll argue Biden is too, too hard on crime and too soft on crime. That makes no sense, bro. You got to relax. You got to reel it in. If you think this is going to win you the election, by all means, I mean, what, how deluded can you possibly be? 
Do you think that your average American is going to hear this and nod along and say, that's obviously true? Joe Biden's pro-Sharia. Yeah, yeah, I, I always knew that one. I always thought that that Joe Biden was pro-Sharia. He has that look to him. Fox News is so silly. They're such a terrible propaganda outlet. They go so far with it. I mean, they're all bad. CNN's bad, MSNBC's bad. But really, this is like a special kind of stupid. I'd imagine even more than half of Tucker's audience is like, what are you saying? What? It's for Sharia? <laughs> Joe Biden? Joe Biden? He doesn't even know what Sharia is, Joe Biden. Are you kidding me? Okay. All right, I'm going to do, let's do one more before I take a break. President Trump attacked VP candidate Kamala Harris for the first time. Let's see what argument he went with. She is uh, a person that's told many, many stories that weren't true. She's very big into raising taxes. She wants to slash funds for our military at a level that nobody can even believe. She uh, is against fracking. Fracking is, she's against petroleum products. I mean, how do you do that and go into Pennsylvania or Ohio or Oklahoma or the great state of Texas? She's against uh, fracking. Fracking's a big deal. Uh, She's in favor of socialized medicine where you're going to lose your doctors, you're going to lose your plans. She wants to take... Uh, your health care plans away from 180 million Americans. 180 million Americans that are very happy with their health insurance, and she wants to take that away. Look at how dishonest they are and how they frame the issues. So Medicare for All is described as they want to take health care away from 180 million Americans. That is so disingenuous. Medicare for all, everybody's covered, everything is covered, and it costs less. And it just makes us like the rest of the developed world. But he, he describes it as 180 million people lose their health care. The funny thing is, and it's not funny, actually, 30 million people lost their health care under Trump, under him. Because he's, you know, repeatedly destroyed Obamacare with various executive orders. So people are hemorrhaging their health care under him. They're hemorrhaging their health care under the current system where health care, health insurance is tied to your employment, and then people are losing their employment. So, of course, people are going to lose their health care, and he's fear-mongering about the solution. Now, by the way, having said all that, she's not in favor of Medicare for all. I wish Republicans always make corporate Democrats sound a hell of a lot cooler than they are. Because she's not. She's not for Medicare for all. She's not for socialized medicine, as he tries to, to call it in a fear-mongering way. But look at, look at what he argues there. Um, she's for cutting our military. I wish, Don. I wish. I wish you were, too. You know, you ran on ending the wars. Now you're continuing them. So you're a fraud, and you're a liar. 
I wish Kamala Harris wanted to cut our military, our gargantuan, bloated military budget, our imperialism budget, where we spend more than the next 10 biggest nations combined. We're still bombing seven different countries and fighting there while people here don't have health care and our infrastructure gets a grade of D+. Are you kidding me? Yes, cut it. She's not. She actually voted against. Remember the Bernie Sanders thing? 10% um, military cut, Pentagon cut across the board. 10%. That's it. Not even that much. 10% is nothing. We need to cut it at least 40%. If we're, we're going to have a serious conversation. Even if we cut it 40 or 50%, we still have the biggest military in the world by far. Bernie proposes a 10% cut. Kamala's against it. I hate her so much. Oh, my God. I hate her. I hate her. But Trump goes out there and says she's for cutting the military. Uh, I love his argument of she's for high taxes. They say this about every Democrat. Like, oh, for high taxes. What taxes? Which taxes? Let's have a conversation about that. So when it comes to, they did this with Biden, when it comes to corporate taxes. And they actually hit him because he wants to raise corporate taxes a little bit. The corporate tax rate was 35%, the nominal rate. Trump came in there and cut it to 21%. And Biden says, I'd like to make it 28%. He doesn't even want to go back to the original 35%. Classic neoliberal corporate Democrat move. And they attack him over it. They're attacking him in one of the few areas where he, he's just better than any Republican. Like, yeah, raise the corporate taxes a little bit. Oh, my God, for higher taxes. <laughs> and I, I don't think she would do she wouldn't do anything with taxes. Maybe she would be more like Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or Joe Biden and ever so slightly raise the top marginal rate. But these Democrats are not in favor of stuff like this. They're really not. They're status quo enthusiasts. Uh, she, Trump hits her by saying she's against fracking. Again, I wish, but she's not. So I, I don't know if you're noticing a theme here, but the Republicans are going to call any Democrat far left. At all times. At all times. So, like, you may as well fight for the right things. You may as well actually try to get Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars and cutting the military budget and all that stuff. You may as well do it, but they don't believe in it. So that's the problem, is they're neoliberal corporatists. They're status quo enthusiasts. They don't believe in this stuff. But, you know, it's hilarious because if we had Bernie, they'd be making the same arguments against Bernie, and they would fall equally hollow. Because, you know, listen, it, it's a lot different. If you bring that up to somebody's face, right? Bring that up to Bernie Sanders' face. You want to cut the military. You know what you say in response? Of course I do. You don't? Have you seen how much money we spend on it? Have you seen how useless and ridiculous these wars are that we're still fighting as our infrastructure is crumbling at home? Are you insane? Of course I want to cut it. Why wouldn't I want to cut it? I'd have to be a crazy person not to want to cut it. That's how Bernie would respond. What do you think's going to win? What do you think's going to win? So they're going to stay far left no matter who it is. You might as well be like, well, I'm actually, here are my policy positions, and I would call it moderate. That's how I would run it. I would say, yes, cutting the military is the moderate position. Raising the minimum wage is the moderate position. Raising taxes on the wealthy is the moderate position. It's what the American people want. Over 65% of the public wants to raise taxes on the wealthy and redistribute the wealth. That's where I'm at. I'm with the people. Where are you? Where are you? Who are you with? The Wall Street people? That's probably who you're with. I mean, that's who you've been with on every other issue. So if they're going to hit you anyway for being far left, wouldn't it be great if the Democrats actually were far left? And by far left, I mean correct on all the issues. If they were for social democracy, but they're not. So, oh, boy.
this is like a race where both sides appear to be trying to lose. Trump is doing the dumbest strategy I've ever seen, way worse than his 2016 strategy. Also, the material conditions for people on the ground in this country are miserable, so that's going to hurt him as well. But also, Biden's trying to do everything he can to lose. He's going out there saying something stupid every day. He picked Kamala Harris for VP. It's just everybody's trying to lose. It's just an endless barrage of stupidity, and that's why my job is pretty easy because there's never a dull moment. I just All I have to do is just point at everything and be like, that's fucking stupid. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. What are we doing? What's going on over here? It's, I'm miserable. <laughs> it hurts my soul, but that's where we're at. All right, let's take a break, guys. When we come back, I got a hell of a lot more, including Fox News does their pity the poor billionaires routine. We'll discuss that and much more. Do not go anywhere, y'all.
Beach. All right, guys. We're back. And we still got a heaping dose of show for you. So you don't want to go anywhere, motherfucker. Just hitting some beautiful notes for all my people out there. You know how we do it. Um, anyway, here we go. Fox News. Not even halfway done with the show yet. How do you like them apples? You like them apples? All right, here we go. Fox News did another pity the poor billionaires routine. This is something that they're very used to doing. Let's take a look. You're writing about it in the Wall Street Journal this morning. Who needs billionaires, you ask? AOC demands even more onerous taxes. And New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says, not so fast. He's trying to get those billionaires to come back to the city, and she's trying to tax them more. Right, right. It's an insane um, dynamic in New York. You know, New York has 118 billionaires. And the idea of the left, of Mayor de Blasio and AOC, who, of course, is in Congress, is to squeeze them even further for, uh, for the money that New York needs. It's going to have a shortfall because of COVID. But there's no realization, as the, as the governor is trying to show them, there's no realization that these people can move anywhere they want. And if you make it too high, the taxes, they'll just go to some place that treats them better. And you'll be worse off. You'll have uh, less revenue. And that's particularly true. I think COVID has exposed the weakness of a state like New York or California that relies heavily on, the, on a few people at the top to pay the bulk of the taxes. Again, that was Governor Cuomo's point. Um, and if you, the, the more you rely on them, the more hurt you are if even a handful leave because you'll take a big hit to your revenues. It, it, Governor Cuomo has basically resorted to begging on this issue to get people back to the city. Listen to Governor <laughs> yeah. Cuomo here. I'll play it for our audience. I literally talk to people all day long who are now in the Hamptons house, who also lived here, or in their Hudson Valley house, or in their Connecticut weekend house. And I say, you got to come back. When are you coming back? We'll go to dinner. I'll buy you a drink. Come over, I'll cook. They're not coming back right now. And you know what else they're thinking? If I stay there, they pay a lower income tax because they don't pay the New York City surcharge. Because they didn't, they're not getting the lifestyle that they were, and in some cases still are paying for, Bill, right? You have to have the incentive to get those people back. Right. You write this in your piece. Billionaire former Mayor Michael Bloomberg once said New York City is a luxury, meaning people were willing to pay more for the high value it provides. The question is whether the wealthy will still be willing to pay that premium and underwrite the spending for a city where shootings and murders are on the upswing, not to mention rising homelessness and other afflictions. And if the governor hopes to persuade billionaires now thinking of leaving to stay put, he'll have to offer them more than a home-cooked dinner, Bill. Right. right. It doesn't look like that's coming, given the agitation by Mayor de Blasio. You know, Albany's answer is they're considering two bills, one a tax on billionaires and another tax on ultra-millionaires. They're just increasingly making the state more hostile to wealth. And I'd say Governor Cuomo is absolutely right on his point about this. However, he's not, he's not quite the supply sider that it sounds like. He wants the federal government to raise taxes and then send the money back to the state. Not only would that spare him 
the, the political problems with raising taxes, he'd get the revenue um, without making New York State less attractive. So it's a mess all around, and it, it, as, as uh, we've been saying, it's going to be harder for these cities, especially now that tens of thousands of people are learning you can keep your job and you don't have to live. You don't even have to live in the New York area. I'm in New Jersey, but I could be in Texas. You know, we're showing beautiful images of Manhattan. It's not the image that you see portrayed in the New York Post these days with moms fearing walking up and down the sidewalks with baby carriages. They fear the lawlessness that is happening in the streets of this city right now, uh, Bill. Okay. There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to say about this. Pull up my notes real quick. So they are 25% correct and 75% wrong. So let me me break that down for you. When they say, hey, listen, you can't, like, if New York State or New York City put into place a billionaire's tax, that, that definitely would make it so that people just move right over the border into Connecticut or move into New Jersey. Or I I do think that that would happen. I think there's evidence that that would happen. So if you do it at a state level or a city level, there will be consequences. There will be, you know, repercussions. Now, where they're wrong, they would argue even at the federal level you can't do a billionaire's tax, and they would make you know a similar, similar argument to that, but they would be wrong at the federal level. They would be wrong. It's not like, oh, if you have a billionaire's tax at the federal level, that billionaires are just going to flee the country because the U.S. market is far too lucrative. They, if they just flee the country, then they're you know, foregoing so much in the process of doing that that they wouldn't do it, and history kind of shows that when we had really high taxes on the rich, it didn't lead to some sort of a mass exodus. Now, you know, would they still, would they try to hide their money in tax havens or whatever? They already try to hide their money in tax havens and stuff, but they always miss the point here, conservatives. They act like that's some sort of argument against higher taxes on the wealthy. No, that's just an argument for fewer loopholes and better enforcement of the law. You understand what I'm saying? Like, they're already hiding their money in, in, in the Cayman Islands using tax havens, doing tax avoidance. You have to get rid of those loopholes, and you have to find a way to penalize that more so that they're incentivized to actually pay their taxes. So, you know, they always look at it from the wrong perspective. It's like, oh, they're already trying to dodge taxes, so obviously we shouldn't have taxes? No, that's an argument for better enforcement. So now, again, as I said, at the the city level or the state level, yes, you are going to run into some issues if it's only one city or or one state that has these billionaire taxes. You really do need to do it at the federal level. And actually, see, they would never tell you the history of this, but that's what I'm here to do. That's what I'm here to do. So um, in 1932... The top marginal tax rate was increased to 63% during the Great Depression. Now, why did they do that? Very simple. Redistribution of wealth. You have a Great Depression. The stock market crash was in 1929, and we had the Great Depression. 
and people were out of work, people were miserable, there was widespread poverty, and the people at the top were hoarding the wealth. And so FDR said famously, I welcome their hatred. You know, you want to hate me? That's fine. Keep hating me, bitch. I'm taxing you. I'm going to take the money, and I'm going to use it for public works programs. I'm going to use it for the New Deal. So they, he raised the top marginal tax rate to 63%, just so everybody understands, because some people don't, especially conservatives. A marginal tax rate doesn't mean that the government steps in and says, I'm going to take 63% of all of your money. That's not what that means. A marginal tax rate means everything above a certain line is taxed at 63%. So for argument's sake, these are not the real numbers, but for argument's sake, like your first, and actually I have the real number here. I could give you the real number. Um, the equivalent of $2.8 million in today's money. So if you make $3 million, okay, it's only the top, the, the top like 200000 or so where that would be taxed at that higher rate of 63%. It would just be everything from 2.8 up to the 3 million. That's taxed at the higher rate. Everything under that is taxed at the lower rate. So just so everybody understands, because some people really don't understand how a marginal tax rate works, and literally like a majority of the Republican discourse um, when we're talking about taxes, and I know because they did it to Bernie Sanders too, they pretend like, Bernie wants to take 90% of your money, oh my God! And it's like, First of all, no, because everybody's in a much lower tax rate than the tax bracket than the top marginal rate. So first of all, no. But second of all, not even for the wealthiest does he want to take 90% of their money. You know, it, he's not even for a 90% marginal tax rate. But even if he was, it's not what you think it is. It's not how they're portraying it. Like the government's taking 90% of your money. So. Um, in 1932, they raised the top marginal tax rate to 63% during the Great Depression because you have to redistribute when there's an economic downturn. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. Now, Fox News would argue against this with terrible arguments, but this is what we should do. And also, um, it, was, it was steadily increased, reaching its peak in 1944. The top marginal rate was 94% on income above $2.8 million in today's money, in today's money. Imagine that. That was the law in the United States of America. You had a 94% tax on income above $2.8 million. Now, conservatives might say, that's wildly unfair. It's not unfair. Is it? Is it? Your first $2.8 million taxed at a significantly lower rate, I think you're going to be okay. The 94% rate above the $2.8 million mark, by the way, that's not even the actual rate of what they would pay. There's loopholes and deductions. So the effective tax rate, the effective top marginal rate was more like 50%, 45%. So the government, all the income above $2.8 million, the government would really take 45 or 50% of that. And you know what? We had much, much less income and wealth inequality, which means we had a much more thriving middle class, which means everybody got a better shot at the American dream. Of course, society wasn't perfect. And of course, we had deep, deep, you know, bigotry in the country and systemic racism and Jim Crow. And, you know, that stuff wasn't even 
attempted to be addressed in any serious way until the Civil Rights Movement, which was later on. Um, but in terms of the economic system, yes, people generally, generally felt like, I have a shot, I could live a decent life, perhaps my kids will have it even better than I do, and one of the reasons for it is when you have high taxes on the wealthy, you can use that for programs that are, that are better for everybody, that are better for everybody. And the other thing is people don't acknowledge this, but extreme wealth threatens a democratic system by its very nature. Because if you have people that have so much wealth, they effectively can control the system. They can control the system. They can buy the politicians. They can rig the rules in their favor. And really, you have oligarchs. So that dynamic in and of itself is a strong argument to always curtail extreme wealth. That's not saying nobody can get rich. That's not saying everybody's going to make the same. No. But it's saying on the margins, yes, you should have no extreme poverty. You should have no poverty. And, you know, you should have nobody who's above a certain mark of wealth. Where do we want to draw that line? Listen, that's a longer debate, and that's, that's a difficult debate, too. Some people will say just no billionaires. Just no billionaires. Other people will say, I wouldn't necessarily go that far. I think we could all agree no trillionaires is a good goal, right? <laughs> some people would disagree, but it's like, really? You want one person, and Jeff Bezos probably will at some point, have become a trillionaire. At the same time, 76% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Half of workers make $30,000 a year or less in this country. Our infrastructure is crumbling. 30 million people, no health care. We got all these problems, but it, it'll be okay if one American, Jeff Bezos, has a trillion dollars. See, this is the problem. This is the problem. That, that those things are connected. They are connected. Tax that guy. Take the money. He'll still be rich. He'll still be fine. Tax that guy, take the money, put it towards health care, put it towards education. This used to be called common sense, guys. It used to be common sense. So, yes, we need higher uh, top marginal tax rate on the rich, higher uh, capital gains tax. We need to redistribute in public works, you know, give people jobs, for example, or, or get, do a UBI, which is crucially important. There's all this stuff that we can do, especially now with the pandemic and the depression. And instead, what does Fox News do? They run interference for billionaires. They go out there and mock and laugh at the idea of raising taxes on the rich as if it's some sort of crazy idea. When the history of the United States, for such a long time, we had really high top marginal taxes on the wealthy. And by the way, that just happens to coincide with what was called the golden age of economic expansion in the United States. You want to know why? Because social democratic policies work, and that's all we're asking for. Okay, next. So Joe Biden, yet again, snubbed the idea of Medicare for All in an interview with Yahoo. Let's watch. Pandemic has exposed, as I've mentioned, so many weaknesses in the healthcare system. Um, the most vulnerable, often black and brown communities, uh, have been handling much of the financial burden. Before the pandemic, you were against comprehensive single-payer system. Um, now, if, me if Medicare for All came across your desk as the pandemic um, has hit so hard, would you veto it? 
it's not going to come across my desk, but the, the, look, the pandemic has not only torn through our nation, devastating families and wrecking economies, it's exacerbated some of the worst inequities. I'm going to fight for health and health equities, but you don't need, the quickest way to get that is for black and Latino Americans to have access to the Obamacare with a public option. That's the quickest way we get everybody covered. But hasn't this pandemic and the tsunami of layoffs shown the limits of private health care um, that is tied to employment? No, it hasn't, in my view. There's countries that have, in fact, uh, single-payer systems that hadn't helped them very much either. The question is, what do we do about rallying the pandemic and treating those who are affected by it? Everyone who's affected by the pandemic is access to free care for anything having to do with that pandemic. Anybody who's sick from the pandemic gets free care. Yeah, that would be single payer. That would be Medicare for all. Anybody who's sick from the pandemic should get free care. That's what you just said. That exact thought, but for everything, not just the pandemic. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're in favor of. That's what the left's goal has been forever. I mean, JFK was in favor of Medicare for all. There's, you know, We covered that. We covered him giving a speech on it when he was pushing for it. How does he not get he's, – he's done this so many times. How do you not get that? You just – you're saying, I'm against Medicare for all, and, and then he argues for Medicare for all. I, it's unbelievable, man. It's – that's unbelievable. <laughs> you should get free care if something happens from the pandemic, obviously. Okay, why shouldn't the person with cancer get free care? Why shouldn't the person who just had a heart attack and can't pay the bill get, get free care? Why shouldn't the person who got, you know, was rushed for emergency surgery, why shouldn't they get free care? Medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy in this country. If you don't want Medicare for all, then you're comfortable with some bankruptcy over medical bills. It is never moral to go bankrupt over medical bills. That makes no sense. It really is frustrating that People are pretending like, oh, this is the, uh, the most progressive in history. But, like, in some ways, we're going backwards. We're going backwards. Like, the Democratic Party now is calling for fewer cuts to the military budget than they used to. They're moving right on health care. Hillary, I think, agreed to Medicare uh, buy-in for everybody over 55. And then I think he said, like, 60 or something like that, or 65. Now, 65 would already be the current Medicare age. But uh, whatever it was, Biden's, Biden's position was worse than Hillary's on this front. And so in some ways, we're going the wrong direction. And it really, it, think about the current state of affairs in this country. We have a pandemic. We have a depression. We have a healthcare system that's so bad that... The host there accurately points out people are, like, losing their health care because they're losing their jobs and they have their health care through their job. Hasn't this pandemic exposed the weakness in the system? And he says no. He says no. What do you mean no? Are you incapable of viewing what's happening? Are you not understanding what you're seeing? I mean, the, the numbers differ depending on what source you go to, but according to Kaiser, it's over 20 million Americans that lost their health care from the pandemic because they lost their job and they had their health care through their job. 
New York Times had one that said like 5.8 million or something like that, but I've seen between 5.8 million and 23 million people lost their health care just during this pandemic. And Joe Biden says, no, I don't think that's an argument for Medicare for all. And then he also says, obviously you should get free health care if something happens with the pandemic. That would be Medicare for all. But it's that with everything. And he, by the way, he's dead wrong when he says other countries have single payer. That didn't help. It. But it did. Who's doing worse in the world? The United States, India, and Brazil. So many countries, and it's not just because of their single payer system. It's because of a variety of things. But that is one of the reasons why they're doing better. You're going to tend to do better in a pandemic if when you're sick, you know you can get help and you won't go bankrupt. We've covered nightmare stories. Somebody got over a million, a $1.9 million medical bill because they had COVID and there were complications. I mean, this is what we're talking about is sheer insanity here. You're lo- he's looking at a pandemic and he's not walking away going, yeah, well, obviously the main goal is Medicare for all. And he, he, now he's done it repeatedly too where he'll say, oh, I am for universal health care, but I'm not for Medicare for all. So what, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? I want to expand Obamacare and do like a public option, whatever. But this, I mean, Obamacare was the system that st- we still had millions of people who were uninsured with Obamacare. It was a step in the right direction, but we still had millions of people uninsured. You can't hold that up as some sort of ideal. You just can't do that. And any kind of public option system still keeps in the driver's seat for-profit health insurance companies who are criminals. They are a mafia the for-profit health insurance companies are, are simply a scam. It's people price gouging you, and they're in between you and your doctor. That's what they are. And he's still saying no during the pandemic. Listen, what we need is, I wish every host was pressing him on this like this host did. And I wish everybody on the left just was never quiet about this and never stopped pushing him on it. Because, honestly, it's embarrassing. The Democratic Party during a pandemic is not for the solution, is not for what we need with our health care system, a Medicare for all system. I find that inexcusable. I do. I really do. I find it inexcusable, especially when you look at the recent polls, man. You know, we have the numbers are overwhelming these days. It wasn't it wasn't it like almost 70 percent of people in one poll that want Medicare for all. Yeah, because when you have a pandemic and you have tens of millions of people losing their health insurance, everybody kind of wakes up to it now, don't they? There was one poll that had 51% of Republicans want Medicare for all. So you have most Republicans, the overwhelming majority of Democrats, and the overwhelming majority of the country, and numbnuts here is, uh, you know, no, let's expand Obamacare or something. Let me say I'm against Medicare for all as I give one tiny solution that is Medicare for all. It's the logic of Medicare for all. Just a, a, a corrupt, confused old man. That's who he is. And you check where he's getting his money from, you're going to see plenty of Wall Street people, plenty of big pharma people, plenty of for-profit health insurance people, and that, that is a big part of why he has this position. Because back in the day, we, again, we've covered the stories. Back in the day, Joe Biden was like, well, obviously the ideal would be a single-payer system. Now, no. Now he's gone full corrupt old man. That's what this is. And you, you better demand better things of your politicians. Because I'm so sick and tired of, they could browbeat us, they could yell at us, they could be condescending towards us. Whatever, man. We're the voters. We're the base. 
We're the real people. He's supposed to be serving us. We're not supposed to fall in line and serve him. It, they make us feel like we're crazy for asking for something so basic, so basic. Medicare for all, universal health care, single payer, during a pandemic. Like, if there was ever a time to say, oh, my God, look at this crisis. Obviously, we've got to address this. But no, he's just a stubborn old goat. No, no, no Medicare for all. Unbelievable. God, I hate this man. Everybody better pressure him on it. Do not shut up. Do not shut up. Look at the DNC thing the other day. They're also against, you know, legalizing recreational marijuana. It's 2020. The guy, this guy wrote the crime bill. How many poor black and brown people got locked up and had their lives ruined because of him? And he's not even going to make amends and say, you know what, we should probably legalize it. He's not even going to do that. Spitting in our face. Spitting in our eye. Slapping us in the face. That's what they're doing. Listen, I, I give you guys the news. I tell you guys what's happening. This just happened in an interview. He was asked, and yet again, he said no to Medicare for all. Some people are going to be like, stop beating up on him because you're helping Trump when you do it. I'm, I hit Trump every day as well, very, very hard. My job is to tell you the truth. The truth is he's a stubborn, corrupt, old goat. And he's not even in favor of the obvious solution. Again, they try to make you feel crazy for wanting what every other developed country has and wanting the thing that we know works. We're not the crazy ones. They're the corrupt ones. All right, next. So I think I know where Trump is getting his campaign strategy from these days. Here's Sean Hannity. Um, and he's going to do some deranged babbling about the election. And as I detail, I have chapter four in my book, Live Free or Die. Guess what? Socialism, a history of failure. One thing is certain, regardless of whatever name they call it, whatever country they've tried it, lofty promises that everything is going to be taken care of, socialism always, always results in broken promises widespread misery, yep, dramatic increases in poverty, carnage, corruption, loss of freedom, and one-party rule. Every single Marxist state throughout history is an utter failure. Still, in order to shore up his radical base, the very weak Joe Biden is now bowing down to these extremists, and Biden, of course, tapping Bernie Sanders as his chief economic czar, literally plagiarizing, as usual, Bernie's socialist platform, word for word, Remember, Bernie Sanders used to be a pariah not long ago inside the Democratic Party, an outlier, you know, was just a socialist, and they just, there was a coalition together with the Democrats. He was just basically tolerated among party leadership, but an annoyance every step of the way from Vermont, who pretty much had insane socialist ideas. Now he's calling the shots inside the Biden campaign because Joe is desperate, and as the president called it, the Biden-Bolshevik-Bernie manifesto. Now, maybe that's why Biden is also adopting the radical left's war on police. I wish I lived in the world that exists in Sean Hannity's head. I wish. Because we would be in a much better position than we are currently if that world was real. There's so much that's amazing about this. I mean, first, I'll state the obvious. 
no, this is not Bernie Sanders' party. I wish it was Bernie Sanders' party. We tried to make it Bernie Sanders' party. We almost had it as Bernie Sanders' party. But it's not. You've got to keep it real. You've got to look at the facts as they are. And um, look at the vote with the DNC the other day. They slapped down Medicare for All. They slapped down legalizing marijuana. They slapped down a bunch of stuff that they wouldn't even, you know, they wouldn't even put the right language to be against Israeli occupation, okay? It's just, it's not, I wish, but it's not our party. It is the party of Joe Biden. It's the party of Kamala Harris. It's the party of Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. It is a neoliberal corporate party through and through. That's what it is. So he's just like, listen, he's just empirically wrong. It's Nancy Pelosi's party. It's Chuck Schumer's party. It's the, the status quo enthusiast party. It's the let's enable Trump party. These are the same people who gave Trump more in his military budget than he even asked for. They gave him increased spying powers. They gave him Wall Street deregulation. The list goes on and on. Having established that he's just factually wrong, like this is the strategy they're going with, and this is what they think is going to work. Hey, Sean, look at the polls, Dippy. You've been screaming this into the ether endlessly, and he's not... He's not doing any better. Trump has been using your strategy, your advice here, your arguments, and it's not working. Because it's ridiculous on its face, it do- and it doesn't ring true. There's so many things. Biden is such a target-rich environment, and they're not, they're not hitting him in any way that's reasonable, that would work, that makes sense. So uh, it's crazy to see this. But beyond that, listen, I find it amazing. One of these days, Somebody needs to let the conservatives know it is not an argument to simply repeat scare words over and over. Like, I get it, man. I know your audience. I know what triggers them. And, you know, your whole thing is, if I say socialism a lot, and if I say Marxism a lot, and if I say Bolshevik, well, this is obviously going to scare the pants off of my geriatric audience. Yes, it is. But what you're doing doesn't mean anything. There's no actual argument that you're making. You're stating it, and just the fact that you're stating it is enough, is enough to signal to your audience, these things are bad and we're against it. Okay, let's actually have a conversation about the specifics, Sean. Let's debate. Let's talk about Medicare for All, for example, single-payer health care, socialized medicine. Let's talk about that. Every other developed country on the planet has one version or another of it. When you look at the objective empirical rankings on which systems are the best in the world, it's always the single-payer systems, always. Either France or the UK or one of the Scandinavian systems, always. They kick our ass in every single relevant, measurable way. But weird, Sean Hannity doesn't tell you that. He doesn't want to have a conversation about the Commonwealth study on this that ranked us 11th out of 11. He doesn't want to have any specific conversations on the nuanced policy positions. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to do that. Why? Why doesn't he want to do that? It's almost because he can't win in those discussions. All he has is what he's doing here. Socialism. 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 Marxism. Bolshevik. And then, by the way, he does the whole socialism. It's a history of failure. There's poverty. He just lists bad things. Poverty. That's bad. There's poverty. There's carnage. There's corruption as opposed to here where we have no poverty and no corruption. You're such a joke. You're such a caricature. 
and of course, what do they do? They never, they never grapple with the most basic of basic responses, which is social democracy is, is on the spectrum closer towards socialism, but it's, it's a mix of socialism and capitalism. And the social democratic countries are objectively the most successful on the planet, objectively, measurably, in every way that we would measure quality of life and how people are doing and hope for the future and everything. They kick our butts. They don't grapple with that. They, like the first place they go to is like the old Soviet Union, for example. They try to pick out incredibly repressive authoritarian regimes and say, that's what, that's, that's what they want. No, that's authoritarianism. That's authoritarianism. And, you know, so many on the left are libertarian leftists. They're, they're against any kind of, you know, over-the-top social control, controls managing your private life and things of that nature. And that's all they have is to conflate any kind of left-wing idea with authoritarianism. Uh, money the waters, not ever discuss the specifics of the Scandinavian countries and what makes them so successful, a lot of socialist ideas. And it's just like he's been, he's been strawmanning people his entire career, and he's got to the point where he's, he's incapable of making an argument. It's literally just scary words. Socialism, aren't you scared? Marxism, aren't you scared? Bolshevik, aren't you scared? you got to be scared. I said the words that are, you're supposed to have the Pavlovian response and say, oh, that's so bad. I hate those bad things. He said bad words. Yeah, I said bad words. Do you, like, do you guys get tired of being so up your own asses and, like, incapable of having a real conversation or really exploring what these different political philosophies and ideologies mean? And the answer is no. It's just they go there. They want to – it's a priest to the choir type thing. It's a, I'm going to tell you what you already believe, confirmation bias all day long. And it's ridiculous. Not, not a single part of that was true. From the idea that the left already has the party, I wish, but we don't, to the lack of an argument. The one time, the one time that he went further than just using the scare words, he put a list on screen. I believe he was attacking Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He put a list on screen of some of the policies that she wanted. And yet again, he didn't actually respond to it. He just showed, like, she wants government health care. She wants, she wants a Green New Deal. She wants a Green New Deal. He, he just listed it and then cited it and then moved on. As if just the citing of it alone is like, got him. Again, he's never, I get it, it's Fox News. He's not trying to be intellectual or whatever. But like, you're not even going to try? He's not going to try. Because again, it's the geriatric audience that's just going there to shut off their brains and have the Pavlovian, oh, Sean Dunn got him again. Congratulations, Sean. You're such a genius. Now, please, continue with your absurd strategy where you act like it's already Bernie's party. Yeah. The guy who um, had the entire Democratic establishment coalesce behind his back, Obama made phone calls to Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete, got them to drop out at the last minute, endorse Biden, literally shivved him in the back the day before the most important election, destroyed him. And then now, all they did is placate him by doing some, you know, a policy unity commission thing. Still put their middle finger up to him in those. But yeah, that guy somehow is, is, you know, running stuff. I wish, Sean, and if it was us, God, we would kick your ass so bad. Because what do you even believe in? You believe in nothing. You believe in nothing. 
Like, what are the list of things that Sean Hannity loves in terms of policy? What, more capital gains tax cuts? we got to get rich investors to be even more rich? Yeah, congratulations. Try making that, that pitch when you actually have a competent person calling out your BS. It wouldn't go too well for you. All right. Now we're going to talk about Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang was snubbed by the DNC for a speaking spot at the convention. Um, So he actually tweeted about this, and he was like, I'm not going to lie, I thought that I was going to be one of the speakers. And then he went on to say, hey, maybe, maybe the reason why I'm not speaking is because I endorsed against one too many incumbents. See, he's got this thing, uh, is it humanity first or humanity forward? He's got a group where he basically um, endorses candidates who, you know, support his universal basic income idea. And that is, I mean, despite, you know, I had disagreements, you had disagreements with Andrew Yang about how early on we feel like he endorsed Biden too early and it was, he should have waited longer and we wish that he was going to be more supportive of Bernie. So, like, I have my disagreements with him. But, yes, you cannot deny it is by definition an outsider move to support primaries against incumbents. That's him saying, like, okay, I might be part of the club in some ways, but in other ways I'm not part of your club. I'm not. I'm going to keep challenging you. So the establishment definitely did not like that, and that is probably one of the main reasons why he was snubbed at the DNC. But the thing that gets under my skin more than anything else, more than anything, John Kasich was given a spot to speak. John Kasich, want to cut Planned Parenthood, John Kasich, deficit hawk, John Kasich. So the message that the Democratic Party is sending there is crystal clear. The message that they're sending is, yes, we would rather have somebody who's a deficit hawk, who's a Republican. We would like to work with that guy before we work with the guy who's championing universal basic income. And by the way, How smart does he look in today's day and age when the pandemic hit? Because one of the policies that hopped the list and got to close to the top of the list, in my mind, was universal basic income. Because what's the best way to help people in the situation that they're currently in? Give them money, give them cash, give it to them now. It's necessary. People need it. So he, he was ahead of everybody on that, and he deserves a lot of credit on that. Now, they screwed him. Listen, I'll say it. I don't know if he'll say it. I'll say it. They screwed him. They screwed him. And the DNC is sending a message, we're more about being deficit hawks than we are about being for universal basic income. That's what they're doing. And he's still enough of an outsider where they give him the finger. Even Elizabeth Warren, who has been a cuck to the establishment in so many ways, staying in to screw Bernie, you know, like trying everything she can behind the scenes, trying to be VP, please approve of me, pick me, I'll do whatever you want. And they still didn't pick her. So that's what, these, that's what people need to understand. If, if you are, if you're 91% establishment and 9% anti-establishment, they're going to say 9% anti-establishment is 9% too much. We don't like you. That's what they're going to do. That's it. That's what they're going to do. So I need people like Andrew Yang to get that. Like, understand it, man. They're never going to like you. 
You want to know why they're never going to like you? Because he actually cares about universal basic income. I have, you know, there are plenty of areas where I have disagreements with Andrew, for sure. But he definitely believes in and will fight for universal basic income. And apparently the other thing that has now hopped his list is ranked choice voting. He feels like that's super important. Yes. So in some ways he's just issue-focused, and they don't like people who are issue-focused, Andrew. I know because I'm issue-focused, and I'm like on the top of their list of people they hate. (laughs) Issue-focused does not get you a long way in democratic establishment politics. It just doesn't. Now, but I want to give you some more here from Andrew. He went on the Young Turks, and um, he said something else that I found really interesting about his experience running for president. Those giant media scrums, the national presidential debates. What did you What did you learn from it? What did you get from it? Oh, I said in one of the debates that it it was like a reality TV show, and that's what it felt like, like you were somehow the participant in the biggest reality TV show on earth. Uh, And it was funny because I was there to make a case for a human-centered economy and universal basic income and these things I thought were vital. Um, But so much of the campaign revolved around uh, things that were media-friendly, like if I crowd surf or dance a human shuffle or whatever it was. Like, like that actually became a bigger deal than my saying everyone should get a thousand bucks a month, at least for, you know, a cycle or two. So it, it was a learning experience. Uh, you know, and I'm an entrepreneur and so you just try and adapt really. So I, I felt like I uh, developed new skills and adaptations as we went. Uh, to just to try and make the case. Like, everything is about achieving the goal. And we're still working on achieving the goal now um, after, you know, my presidential run ended. Isn't that wild? What he's saying there is, listen, it didn't matter that I put forward all these, like, interesting, unique solutions and policies. That didn't drive discourse at all with mainstream media. What did if I crowd surfed or if I danced at an event? I remember there was one story where he like teared up. I think he was talking about gun violence or something like that. And he teared up at an event and that was a headline. And um, like, it's almost like, you know, he had an epiphany of just how broken the media culture is in this country. But yes, these are the things that get mainstream media to pay attention. And it's just, it's so sad. It's so sad because really it should be, first and foremost, about the policies and about helping people. And, you know, you could, in theory, you could be the world's greatest genius and still get snubbed if you don't have something that hooks them in, you know? If you don't have something that grabs their attention. And in a weird way, guys, this is how Trump kind of, like, hacked the system in a way. Because that dude is tailor-made to keep the eyes of the media on him. That dude does stuff all the time, says stuff all the time, that's just like perfectly, perfectly hacks them and and gets them almost like zombies where they have to talk about him and they have to go after him. And, you know, if you give somebody a tremendous amount of attention, then yes, more people are going to be aware of him. And then oftentimes when you attack him in ridiculous ways, as the mainstream media does, that'll get more people to defend him. So it's almost like so much of what brought about the Trump era was the media's inability 
to kind of like leave the BS aside and go right to the specific solutions and have like serious, sober discussion and analysis on that. And it's just, it hurts, man. That hurts. That, that, that it really is a detriment to the entire country that that's the way it works. And I think that's a, you know, a great observation there from Andrew Yang. I mean, new media tries to be better. We try to be better. But listen, I'm also not just a straight news guy. I, I, I do, obviously, I'm out here giving opinion, too. I'm telling you guys what I think about all this stuff. So it's a little different. You know, there's straight news, and then there's supposed to be, like, I hate this word, but it kind of is what we are, like infotainment. I'll give you information, but I also entertain you at the same time. Um, so, but we're trying to be better. Like, new media is trying to be more policy-focused. But, you know, it really is a shame that that really does take a backseat in so many ways. And so, yes, between the DNC and the media... There's uh, quite an awakening going on out there where people are realizing just how screwy and messed up the system is and how, you know, it's important to check out alternatives or try to, try to change the game as much as possible because this game is trash. Okay. Oh, I got to do, okay, should I save TYT story? No, I'll do it now. All right, so I have a story about the Young Turks that I think you guys will find interesting. The Young Turks has been denied DNC press passes. So this is, uh, this is interesting. There's a a tweet that kind of blew up a little bit the other day. Brent Welder says, How phenomenally stupid of the Joe Biden campaign and the DNC to deny convention press credentials to the Young Turks. So, so stupid. And then you can see the email there. Breaking, TYT denied press passes at this year's DNC. Dear Brent, did you hear the news? The Democratic Party has denied its press passes at this year's Democratic National Convention. It's fairly stunning for a party that claims to be inclusive to deny its media credentials just because TYT isn't 100% aligned with their interests or progressive media outlet dedicated to exposing the truth about what's happening in this country. So, um, now they say, well, I mean, our convention this year is most, mostly virtual. And since it's mostly virtual, a lot of, there's a lot of outlets that are kind of being left behind. And so you just happen to be, it's unfortunate that you're one of the outlets that was left behind. Now, Yes and no, there is, it is virtual, but then there is also, I think, a max of 225 people or something like that that will be in Milwaukee, so it's a little bit of both. But even so, if anything, I think maybe that's an argument in the other direction, too. Like, okay, if it's virtual, then it's super easy to give somebody a press pass and let them, I don't know, be in on a freaking Zoom call or whatever. Like, so why not? Why not? Why not? And that gets the main point, guys. Trump has threatened many times as president, to kick people out of the press room, kick outlets out of the press room, because they're fake news. He says they're fake news. He's like, I I want you gone. And every time Trump did that, the media across the board would be outraged. And they'd say, how dare you? It doesn't matter if you like the outlets, dislike the outlets. They are press outlets, and they're doing their job. And we have a First Amendment in this country, and we believe in free speech and a free press. 
So you have no say. www.fallback.org and let the media do their jobs. Now, this is effectively the same thing. It's Joe Biden and the DNC and all of them saying, TYT, I mean, we don't, we think you, and and this is really what's going on because we know what they're thinking. They know who TYT is and they think you guys have been too hard on us over the years. You guys were big Bernie Sanders supporters. Now, by the way, I know Jenk is definitely supporting Biden now. I don't know what the case is with Anna, um, but like even mild criticism, not being in total lockstep and they're getting treated probably worse than even Fox News is getting treated because they hate the left more than they hate the right. Corporate Democrats hate the left more than they hate the right. And there's just zero discussion about this, zero outrage about this. You know, maybe a handful of like print outlets discussed it, but Weird, you don't have the same outcry acting like it's the end of the First Amendment when Joe Biden denies press passes and the DNC denies press passes to people who are critical of him. But if Trump did the same thing and when he has done or threatened to do a similar thing, oh my God, it's the end of the world. And this really highlights one of the main problems, man. The press is corporate Democrat propaganda. That's what they are. They are corporate Democrat propaganda. And so this is going to get no discussion at all. And listen, you could have plenty. I have criticisms of, of Jenk. You know, we've debated many of these things publicly. But all of our issues, put them aside. The fact of the matter is, this is a no-brainer, and they really should have given the press pass. And it is also kind of like a middle finger to the people who aren't totally in lockstep and are to Joe Biden's left. On top of the Kamala thing, I mean, it's, it's never-ending. Everything that they're, they're pretending to do for you is just placating. That's all it is. So everybody just, it's, Keep your eyes wide open, okay? Know what's really going on here. And um, unfortunately, we're going to be one of the few to to discuss this and call this out about how it's radio silence now, but if Trump did it or did something similar, forget it. It would be the end of the world. All right, now um, we're going to talk about the issue of homelessness, which um, there's a really good report from Vice, and people had to get innovative as a result of COVID-19. And you'd be surprised how, what's the old saying, necessity is the father of invention or something? You'd be surprised how much people can get their rear in gear when they feel like they have to. So there's, you know, quite, quite a story here. This is one hell of a, a, a takeaway. So let me set it up for you in a second. I'm just pulling up the proper graphic. Okay, here we go. Vice News did an interesting report on an initiative happening in California regarding the homeless population. Obviously, with COVID-19 hitting, we have a pandemic. So many problems are associated with that. Um, And there's a fear that you can't have homeless people all over the place outside in the middle of a pandemic that's very unsafe for them, but also for the rest of the population. So action needed to be taken. And I want to show you some of what they did, and then we'll discuss.
started moving homeless folks into thousands of suddenly empty hotels, part of a statewide program called Project Roomkey. The county set a target to move 15,000 homeless into hotels and motels, a number based on who on the streets was most at risk for COVID, those 65 and up or with underlying conditions. Dr. King is here to see some of his patients. We're here once a week setting up a pretty complete clinic where we can take care of their needs, do an examination, order their medications, whatever we need to do to get them started on their health care. Remember I met you? No, I remember. You guys were soaking wet. Living on the beach every day was bad. Kathleen Cooper is a 49-year-old artist with a mechanical heart valve who's at risk for stroke. King used to treat Cooper and her partner when they were living on the beach. Good morning. Do you mind giving me the grand tour? Yeah, sure. Now the couple shares one of this hotel's 133 Project Room Key rooms. This is a big space. came largely from FEMA, and hotels were initially leased for 90 days. Now four months in, FEMA's still paying, but only in monthly increments. It's unclear how long the money will really last, or if all the leases will be extended. Project Room Key was projected to cost around $195 million in just L.A. County, but the exact figure is unknown because so many agencies are involved. So that's that's all really interesting. Um, they were only able to do, what was it, like 25% of their goal since they since they launched this thing, and the original goal was 15,000 people um, staying in the hotels. So, you know, in some ways you could say that's that's not a success because they didn't hit their goal. But I mean, on the other hand, they did get thousands of people off the streets who were at the highest risk level during the pandemic. Um, but really, I mean, my takeaway from this story overall is that when, when, when your back is against the wall and we really feel like we have to do something, the ball starts rolling, man. And they got thousands of people to have a roof over their head who are high risk during the pandemic. Now, listen, long-term, you know, viability of, of, keeping them in hotels, that's not going to happen. Um, but we absolutely can and we absolutely should build housing units to give homeless people a roof over their heads. Now, there's been studies on this, guys. We literally, even as taxpayers, you save money if you give homeless people a place to stay. People have a hard time wrapping their mind around this, but... When you give homeless people a place to stay, it, it makes it so that you avoid the other costs of somebody being out on the streets, all the emergency costs associated with that, whether it's you know, police encounters when they're involved with police or whether um, there, there are other ways in which they cost society money. Um, but really the monetary thing, put the monetary stuff aside because that's not as important as the moral angle of it. But my point is, even from the monetary perspective, they've done detailed studies on this, and they found that it saves 20% if you give homeless people a roof over their head. So, number one, we should do that, because it's actually the fiscally responsible thing to do. But on top of being the moral thing to do, 
But beyond that, I mean, another takeaway I have here is that we, like, not only do we need a Medicare for all system where you can go to the hospital and, and it's taken care of, I feel like we also need mental health clinics the same way. Because a lot of the people who are homeless have mental health issues that are undiagnosed or, and untreated. And if we had a situation where we had mental health clinics that were just as easy, you could just walk in there and, and get treated and you don't have to pay out of pocket. Again, this should be part of a Medicare for all system. I think we'd just be so much healthier as a country. You know, I think that, and it's not just homeless people too. I think a lot of people have undiagnosed, untreated mental illness and they could use help. And if they had an option where, you know, it wasn't going to cost them an arm and a leg, they'd probably take advantage of it. But in this country, you can't even go to the hospital hospital. Forget, you know, a, a mental hospital. You can't even go to the hospital hospital and, and get away scot-free and not have a, a large bill to pay. So the system is just so, like, it's non-existent in some ways. The system is non-existent when it comes to mental health stuff for people, including homeless people. The system is non-existent when it comes to a large federal program to house homeless people. Guys, we have anywhere from 600,000 to a million homeless people in this country. And I got news for you. With the pandemic and the depression, there was one CNBC article that said it could be up to 28 million people who become homeless if we don't act. So even take even the high number, 1 million now to 28 million. 28 million. We got to have better systems in place, man. We have to have better systems in place. We do. We have to. Is it really too much to ask for a roof over the heads of these people? And each one of them is a person. Each one of them has a story as to how they got there and what happened. And, you know, they're people. They're people. And I, I want to live in a society that looks at somebody in a situation like that and they go, we're going to help. Am I asking for people to go all out? Are you going to get somebody a 2,000-square-foot home with a pool in the backyard? Nobody's asking for that. Nobody's asking for that just a roof over their head, a place where they're safe and some mental health treatment. And really, it took a pandemic for people to realize, and they did this in the UK, a bunch of places did this. They were just like, we're just going to give you a place to stay. It's like, oh, okay, so that was obviously an option all along, and the only reason you're doing it now is because you feel like it threatens the general population more to have homeless people out there with a pandemic you don't want the rest of the population to get sick, so that's why they're doing it. But really, all we need is the political will. And if this isn't, you know, convincing you yet, let me say to all my conservative friends out there, a lot of these homeless people are veterans. They're veterans. And this is how much their society has left them behind. So it turns out, if we want to get a roof over their head, we can. We can. It just requires the will, the political will, hiring enough people and a giant effort. So I hope we can get our act together, man, because I really want to have a situation where there's no homeless people. There's no reason to have any homeless people in this country. None. We have the ability to get rid of them, and we're not doing it. We have the ability to get rid of the entire concept of homelessness. We can house everybody if we want it. We just have to do it. Okay, next. Time to scare the shit out of everybody. So Nate Silver is out with his official election prediction model. 
And let's just say the results are really incredible. So I'm going to show you up front here now. Um, it's a 71% chance that Joe Biden wins. 71%. Now, um, I don't know if that makes you feel comfortable, uncomfortable, or whatever, but just understand that I went back and took a look at what his model predicted on election day, the morning in 2016. And it was literally 71% chance that Hillary Clinton was going to win. 71% chance Hillary was going to win. It's the exact same number. Now, what's interesting is Biden, I thought, there's some averages where Biden is up more than Hillary was up at this point, like a point or two more. But still, the model has it at 71%. So, I mean, this should be a warning. This should be a wake-up call to people. This race is not over. And it's very possible that Biden even peaked too early because there were some crushing Biden polls that came out maybe a month and a half or two months ago where he was just routing Trump. And listen, as a Bernie supporter, I know a thing or two about peaking too early because I saw Bernie do exactly that. So is it possible Biden is peaking too early? Yes, it absolutely is. Um... Also, I do have to say that I see no signs of life from Trump. His strategy sucks. He's doubling down and tripling down on his shitty strategy. And also the material conditions for people out there in the country are steadily deteriorating. So that should, in theory, go against Trump. But you never know because Democrats are, are just the best at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. If anybody can mess it up, it's the Democrats. I mean, he already started messing it up. He picked Kamala Harris as VP. And on top of that, he does a gaffe every other day. He can barely speak. So it, it's still, this is still a wide-open race, man. And the fact that it's the exact same number really says something. Now, I can hear already some objections out there talking about, oh, my God, well, these guys were wrong. Why do we even care what they say this time around? Except Nate Silver actually was the least wrong of all the pollsters. Like, there was a Huff Post thing that had Trump at, like, 98% uh, to lose. Um, he was the most cautious. Nate Silver. He, again, he had it at 71% on election day. But really, like, the actual vote count was kind of right in line with the polls. Hillary won by, like, 3 million votes. So she won the popular vote. That's kind of, like, right in line with what the polls were saying. She was up two to four points uh, nationally in the polls. She won by 3 million votes. That's kind of, that's, like, right within the margin of error. It's perfectly normal. But the problem was, of course that Trump had his support dispersed throughout the country in the right way to win. Like, he had the Rust Belt support. He was hammering away in the Rust Belt leading up to the election. So, like, the polls weren't that off, is my point. So if the polls are not that off this time, we still got a race on our hands, son. We still got a race on our hands. So nobody get too comfortable. Um, but, you know, it's like watching a slow-motion train crash or something, because train crash... Train crash? <laughs> Plane crash? It's watching a disaster unfold in slow motion. Because honestly, no matter what happens, it's going to feel like a disaster. <laughs> if it's Trump and Pence again, oh my God, there's a disaster. But if it's Biden and Kamala, you know, I certainly will not be having the reaction that many partisan hacks have, where they're like, yes, we can go to brunch now. Yes, wonderful, glorious.
All right, final story of the day, y'all. Final story of the day, you bitch. So Jeff Stein dropped another banger on us here, as he always does. Joe Biden's campaign declined to comment when I asked if he supports Kamala Harris's plan with Senator Bernie Sanders and Ed Markey to provide $2,000 every month to millions of Americans during the pandemic. So listen, this is actually one of those things where I, I see that Kamala did this, and I'm like, oh, great, this is, like, that's the best thing Kamala's ever done, <laughs> supported that policy. So I'm happy that she supports that policy. That's wonderful. But Biden's campaign declined to comment when asked, hey, your VP supports this. Do you support this? Do you support this? I think one of the things that's so depressing is that they're not even teasing us, bro. They're not even teasing us. Biden is still out there like, no, on Medicare for all. He's asking, he's being asked, like the Yahoo host asked him a very direct question of like, hasn't the pandemic proved that our current system is kind of trash, that your health care is tied to your job? And he was basically like, no, no, I, I'm, I'm against Medicare for all. And this one, like, really, you couldn't just say, yeah, I'm in favor of $2,000 a month. You couldn't say that for the remainder of the pandemic. You couldn't say that. You couldn't say that. By the way, th- like, these are the solutions. Like, this is what a solution would look like. A solution would look like Medicare for all. A solution would look like $2,000 a month for the, re- the remainder of the crisis, at least. That's what a solution would look like. He's like, no, I I would like to do half measures on top of half measures, and you can shut up and support me because Trump is really bad, isn't he? Uh, Give me something, Joe. Give me something, man. It's just nonstop. Every day he's punching me in the face. And then when you point out that he's punching you in the face, some people get mad at you. You're going to help Trump, huh? You're going to help Trump by pointing out that Joe is punching you in the face? Well, here, let me hold you down while Joe punches you in the face. And if you say you don't like it, then you're helping Trump. Helping Trump. Just shut the fuck up, for God's sake. Why are you not putting all this energy towards trying to push Joe Biden to support anything that's good? We can start with this, $2,000 a month for Americans during the remainder of the pandemic. Let's start with that. Let's push him on that. Let's get him on the record for something good, because we need something Okay. And on that note, y'all, I love you, baby. I'll talk to everybody soon. Stay safe. Have a good one. Your boy's out. Peace.